Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tale to Wowkey specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Physical Attraction's Teot Wauki specials. We have for the first time a guest on the show today, Phil Torres. Phil Torres is an author, affiliate scholar at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, former contributor at the Future of Life Institute, and founding director of the X Risks Institute. He is published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Skeptic. Free Inquiry, The Humanist, The Journal of Future Studies, Bioethics, The Journal of Evolution and Technology, Foresight and Metaphilosophy, as well as popular media like Time, Motherboard, Salon, Common Dreams, Counterpunch, Alternet, The Progressive and Truthout. I was absolutely delighted that he agreed to be interviewed for a show like ours, and so I urge you to seek out his website, risksandreligion.org, and buy one of his books. There's The End, What Science and Religion Have to Tell Us About the Apocalypse, which is on my shelf already, and forthcoming, we have Morality, Foresight, and Human Flourishing, which is going to act as an introduction to the whole field of existential risks, which people have been thinking about for a good deal of time now, and hopefully soon we'll be able to review that book on the show. And you can follow Phil at Riskology on Twitter. Uh, I just had the conversation, and it was a pretty amazing discussion, which we split into two parts. So the first one will deal with some existential risks in general, and then in a week or two we'll have the second part of our discussion, which continues the debate, and we also include some focus on artificial intelligence as well. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it, and uh, when you're done, if you want to find out more about existential risks, definitely look up Phil online. So Phil, thanks for coming on the show. I thought I'd ask you a little bit about your background first. Of course, it's a topic of incredible importance for humanity, but how did you first become interested in researching existential risks? Was there a light bulb moment? That's a really good question. Um, I don't think there was a light bulb moment. Um, so I would sort of trace my interest in the in the topic. Well, one, I think the topic is kind of intrinsically interesting. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's hard to to think of a subject matter that is more profound in a sense mm -hmm. than human extinction or you know just thinking about like the deep future of humanity um perhaps we evolve into post-humans and go and you know spread throughout the the universe um yeah there there's you know it's there's lots of kind of amazing uh, genuinely inherently fascinating issues to think about there but so me personally i, I think it probably stemmed from the fact that I grew up in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, U.S. of course is like by far the most religious uh, country in the developed world. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I happened to grow up in a kind of Baptist community uh, that had um, dispensationalist leanings. So mm -hmm. dispensationalism is uh, you know is this particular theological framework that was basically invented in the 19th century john nelson darby put it together and 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 it's out of the dispensationalist view that you get the notion of the rapture um so and there's a lot of christians who are you know who anticipate today and have for you know for decades now anticipated the rapture to happen within their lifetime so i was sort of exposed to that i feel like that that was you know, the, the imminent end of the world was 
kind of a background, <laughs> you know, to to my life growing up. I mean, it amazes us. I'm I'm from the UK, as you know, and uh, mm-hmm. here our religion doesn't quite have the same millennial intensity to it, I guess you could say. So when I read a statistic like the idea that 40% of Americans believe that the rapture is coming within their own lifetime, I find that an incredible thought. And I just think if if this are, if these are your beliefs, you know, I've never spoken to anyone with these beliefs, but if these are your beliefs, they must affect how you perceive all kinds of things in the world, including existential risks. I think that's totally true. I mean, with respect to aversion, a particular kind of existential risk, namely an extinction mm-hmm. risk, um, there's simply no place within the, the eschatological narrative held by Christians or by religious people in general. Uh, it's something that sort of worries me because Pew Research Center projects that religion around the world is growing. And by 2050, you know, about 8 billion out of 9.3 billion people will be religious. Um, so if you're religious and therefore you don't believe that human extinction is even within the space of possibility, you know, um, that mm. might make you maybe a little less worried about it. Or indeed, if you're inclined to encourage it in a sense, because you view it as, you know, being necessary, a part of the tribulation that comes before a sort of greater redemption that's part of this narrative, right? That is exactly right. Yes, it's another big concern. The, these end time, end of the world beliefs really do affect people's worldview. Mm-hmm. It affects their behavior in the ballot box. You know, one of the main reasons for the extremely strong, intransigent <laughs> support for Israel from a lot of Americans is precisely because, so I mean, there's, there's a verse in Genesis that says those who bless Israel will themselves be blessed. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one reason which is, of course, is religious in nature. But the other reason is eschatological, uh, namely that you're never going to have eternal peace until the, the tribulation and the, the second coming, Armageddon, and so on occurs. And none of those events can happen unless there is a Jewish state in Palestine. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there's a philosopher named Jerry Walls who wrote the introduction to the Oxford Handbook on Eschatology, uh-huh. and he to use his phrase, there, there's a kind of grim satisfaction that some of these Christians take when they hear about wars, particularly in the Middle East and natural disasters and so on, because these are all harbingers of the end of the world. And again, you're not going to have eternal peace mm-hmm. until you know the, the end of the world actually occurs. It's precursors of an ultimate righteousness. And you know, I think that's very interesting. I've never actually made that connection. I usually thought that the support for Israel was, you know, a, a geopolitical counterbalance, but I hadn't made the evangelical uh, connection. That's really, really interesting. Um, I think if we could just move more broadly towards the topic of existential risks. Um, sure. There's many different kinds of existential risk. You know, there's risks that could actually wipe out the species completely, risks that could severely damage us, and risks that could lead to something of a, a flawed realisation of society. And in our series of shows, we've been dealing with all sorts of various scenarios for, quote, the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But I've had difficulty in categorizing some of them because there are some things that aren't quite existential risks that could plausibly kill all humans, but big threats for us to, to deal with nonetheless. So I would like to say, how would you define an existential risk? And out of all of the scenarios that you can conjure up, which ones do you think keep you up at night? <laughs> um... It's a big question, I know. It's it's a fascinating question. So first of all, the, I mean, the standard definition of an existential risk put forward by Nick Bostrom at Oxford mm-hmm. is is kind of two parts. One is either 
human extinction, or some event that results in a in an irreversible decline in our potential for desirable future development. Um, so desirable, you know, that's a normative term. So you need some kind of value theory to, to make sense of, you know, what, what is, you know, desirable future development for transhumanists is going to be quite different from like an anarcho-primitivist. Absolutely. Are we talking about maximum human happiness and what do we think is going to make us happy in the future compared to now? Exactly. So there, there are a lot of existential risk scholars who, um, who tend to be transhumanists and they also tend to hold a kind of utilitarian ethical view. So it's, it's, you find in, in the literature, some of them even talk very excitedly about a, a, a kind of aggregative view. So like the more happiness you have, you know, you, you sort of just add everybody's happiness together. You count the happiness of people in the far future. I've read this in Bostrom and so on, and it's the idea that this kind of thing might, for example, help us to lead with climate change a little bit better. Because if climate change means that the billions of humans that could potentially exist in the future will live more miserable lives, then it's mm -hmm. worth any amount of sacrifice on the part of the humans who live now to prevent it, even if that means, you know, giving up our comfortable lifestyles and so on. And that's the kind of argument you can make when you can appeal to billions of people in the future. Before you go on, I just think it's worth defining transhumanism for our audience. Oh, sure. Yeah. Transhumanism is, is just the view. There's kind of two components of this as well, a descriptive and a normative. It's the view that we probably will be able to modify our bodies and brains in various ways mm -hmm. in the future and that it would probably be desirable to do this. And there are lots of caveats that transhumanists aren't just thoughtless technophiles. Yes. You know, in fact, the transhumanists are the ones who have really pioneered the study of big picture risks and uh, and have really thought hard, I think the hardest of all scholars out there, about the ways that technology could go wrong. From an evolutionary perspective, every state is an in-between state, right? There's no like final, uh, you know, telos that you evolve to. Absolutely. It's an optimization process that just keeps going. Yes, yes, exactly. And so rather than allow the, the dumb mechanism of, of Darwinian natural selection and, and, you know, other random mechanisms like genetic drift and stuff like that control the trajectory of our evolution. Let's take control of that trajectory ourselves using genetic engineering, using like brain machine interfaces, uh, all sorts of, you know, sort of high tech stuff like that. So that's the, the, the view of transhumanism. It's ultimately kind of a, well, you don't even need to be an optimist. I mean, I'm, I'm more or less a transhumanist, but I'm also not an optimist. <laughs> Um, I, I feel like the status quo of our species is not sustainable. Like we're, we're just not going to survive on this planet much more um, with climate change and with nuclear weapons and even more with emerging technologies unless something really significant happens to our capacity to think deeply about the future, to, uh, to implement wise policies, to navigate the obstacle course of risks in front of us. I think the only way forward is a really dangerous way forward, and that's to use technology to modify ourselves and to modify the world. Person engineering, world engineering uh, is the only way forward. But I think that's I think that's super risky. <laughs> I mean, but I completely agree with you because, I mean, we're going to talk in our future episodes about the, uh, this idea of exponential growth. And if you just look at graphs in all fields, in, in human population, in the capacities of our technology, what you see is that things have been exponentially growing since the Industrial Revolution in so many different fields, human population, technological ability, Moore's law for computing power, anything mm -hmm. you like. 
and exponential growth on a finite world never really seems that sustainable. And the other thing that seems obvious is that in the 21st century, we now live in a case where you can say our lives when we reach the age of 100 will be unimaginably different to the lives that we led, you know, as babies that our parents mm -hmm. led. And that's been the case for a few generations. But, you know, in the Middle Ages, life for a peasant would be the same broadly as it was, you know, since the invention of agriculture, more or less. Uh, but we now see this incredibly rapid change. And it seems like it's unstable as a situation and it will need to lead towards something else. When you point out that it is, in fact, only the transhumanists who believe that we're going to uh, massively improve human capacities and so on. These are the only people who are really thinking about the risks because they're the only people who really accept that it's going to happen. Once you can modify yourself and make yourself more intelligent or there will be a huge upwards pressure on everyone else to do this. And once that takes place, I think we are going to be in a in a very different world in the same way as you can't put something like the Internet back in the box, even though we've now found that there are lots of uh, negative aspects to the Internet as well uh, in terms of disseminating misinformation and so on. So I think it's it's really important that people both understand and engage with the range of risks that we have uh, available to us. Well, available <laughs> us, threatening, us, right, I suppose, right. is a better word. So out of things like pandemics, climate change, bioweapons, artificial intelligence, which ones do you think are the, the most threatening and, uh, and why? So it's a, that's a good follow up question, because this, this really ties into what we were just saying about the growing power of of these technologies and the exp the exponential growth given sort of this you know finite uh, island on which we we exist probabilities accumulate over time and so one thing that i'm very worried about is emerging technologies are much more powerful than ever before and that appears to be occurring you mentioned moore's law fast exponential growth the capacity to uh, to read genomes sequence genomes you know kurzweil has proposed his uh, uh, law of accelerating returns, uh, which is, you know, which is just kind of this, I feel like it subsumes a lot of these other laws. We have some shows coming up about that where we discuss the uh, possibilities of accelerating returns and how much you can have faith in it and all sorts of things like that. I'm particularly worried about emerging technologies and not just the growing power, but the the distribution of offensive capabilities across society. So they're becoming more and more accessible. There, Whereas before 1945, there was no human or human institution who had the capacity to unilaterally destroy the world. In fact, I mean, arguably, uh, there was no even like imaginable configuration of conflicts uh, and so on that could have resulted in human extinction. Today, that's absolutely not the case. Cold War, you had two actors and with emerging technologies, this emerging technologies are multiplying the number of potentially omnicidal uh, agents out there who have omnicidal urges and who could actually act on those urges. So it's a really dangerous situation. If you actually look at the numbers, so I mean, I've done some calculations. For example, if you had a t population of 10 billion people and mm -hmm. the probability of each of them, either intentionally or accidentally, let's just say push a, push, push a doomsday button of some sort, <laughs> you know, where this, mm -hmm. this button would initiate a, a weapon of total destruction that would either cause civilizational collapse or human extinction. If, if each of these individuals had a mere probability of six or seven zeros, so 0.000004% chance per decade, that would virtually guarantee that society would collapse. I mean, it's an incredibly negligible 
probability that uh, that adds up across you know a large population. Ten billion people is a very plausible number for the population by the end of the century. This this reminds me of、uh, some calculations that the U.S. Air Force did when they were first developing nuclear weapons, and they said, "Oh, we only have per decade a seven percent risk of an accident or something," and they thought that was quite low. That was their <laughs> achievable lower target. But of course, by the time you get there, you actually realise that across the course of the Cold War, it adds up to something like fifty percent, and then you think, "Wow, we basically tossed a coin while there were bombers flying over Russia as to whether one of them would crash or release a nuclear weapon by accident." Yeah. So when you talk about the increasing availability of these technologies. I mean, I think that is what's scary because, like you say, before 1945, no one could dream of destroying the human race in in any possible way. Then nowadays, with nuclear weapons, we've had North Korea, for example. But even North Korea, the entire state had to focus on making nuclear weapons for decades before they became a real threat. And some would argue that even now they don't quite have the capacity to、uh, wipe out the human、mm-hmm. race. But I mean, I've read with biotechnology. Just last year, there was a group of scientists who recreated the horsepox virus, and they said, you know, we didn't do this because we want horsepox to exist, but we want to show people that with a couple of decent scientists and a research lab and a hundred thousand dollars, we could perhaps recreate the smallpox virus, which was, you know, a, a terrifying disease that we thankfully wiped、mm-hmm. out, and that was considered for use as a bioweapon by the USSR and the US. So I see what you're saying in terms of with biotech and nanotech and maybe artificial intelligence. We're going to have many small groups of people who might have incredible power over the rest of us. And、uh, so, how do you think society should deal with this type of threat? And of course, the fact that it links to your other main theme, which is the intersection between religion and existential risks. Do you think we have any hope of containing it? I think it's an open question right now.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's reassuring to everyone at home. <laughs> A bunch of things come to mind. I mean, one is,、um, is you know, you mentioned、uh, the possibility of a mistake or error during the, the Cold War.、Um, I think that's a really underestimated issue, particularly with emerging technologies. A lot of people who talk about, you know, these malicious agents and so on.、Uh, I would call these agential risks.、Uh, you know, these are individuals who would. You know, who would push a, or at least potentially push a doomsday button if one happened to be within reach. And these would be individuals like apocalyptic terrorists,、uh, radical negative utilitarians, eco terrorists, perhaps, who believe that you know the the Gian system would be better if humanity were exterminated. And then there's a kind of catch-all category of idiosyncratic actors where you have、uh, these are like you know sadistic psychopaths or or people who are psychotic. And there are many. Om Shinrikyo or someone like that—they—they they were a cult that tried to develop these biotech weapons, and perhaps if they'd been around today with the funding and the power that they had, they might be able to do something far worse than what they ended up doing with the sarin gas attacks. In That's exactly right. And a lot of the individuals who joined Asahara Shoko, who's the the leader of、mm-hmm. uh, of Om Shinrikyo, were highly educated people. <laughs> you know? Absolutely.、Um, I mean, they really had the technical、uh, know-how. I mean, like you said, if you transplanted them today, I think it would be even more worrisome.、Um, there are just many cases. I, I've written papers about this. I mean, many instances of people who went on rampage shootings who have journals where they just talk about, like, you know, they just have like really ghoulish and indeed omnicidal fantasies. They just talk about like, I really wish I were able to destroy the world. I would love to do that, and so on. It's quite scary, but ultimately. That number is far lower than the number of 
people who will have access to these technologies in the future who are well-intentioned, but nonetheless are behaviorally or epistemically or whatever fallible, you know, capable of making a mistake. I think the number one reason that the number one threat with respect to nuclear weapons these days uh, is not an intentional conflict, but a mistake. And the history goes, the history of nuclear mistakes is long and horrifying. We've got a couple of episodes coming up on this and we're talking about all kinds of things from the Petrov incident to, you know, even early in the early days when they were making the yeah. weapons, there were some pretty nasty criticality accidents that happened with people who, you know, were the leading experts in the world in their field. But it's an emerging field and you can't expect them to anticipate everything that could go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Petrov just died, <laughs> I think, last yes, week. Yes, absolutely. And... R.I.P. to the man who saved the world. But, you know? And he's not the only one. There are other amazing cases of... Uh, Arkhipov as well during the Cuban Missile yes, Crisis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, just extraordinary instances, uh, uh, extraordinary close calls. And I'm also reminded here of, I mean, not only have there been like malfunctions that, you know, there's the Goldsboro um, accident in the U.S. where... Yes, this was the, uh, let's describe it for our listeners. This was a, a B-52 crashed in North Carolina. And I believe it's two bombs fell out and one of them almost detonated, except a single switch held that prevented it from detonating. <laughs> and uh, on the other one, that switch failed. So if the same accidents had happened on both bombs, then the US would have accidentally nuked North Carolina. Are you in North Carolina at the moment? So I used to live in North Carolina, but okay, uh, right. um, I did live right down the road from Goldsboro. And, and perhaps wow. what's most eerie about that incident, so those planes were, I mean, there, there was just a malfunction on one of the, the planes that was flying around as a result of the, the Chrome Dome project. So you're, uh, as I recall, what you said is exactly right. I think there were like mm -hmm. seven stages that the bomb has to go through to detonate, and it got through six of them, or there were eight, and it got through seven. I can't remember. But it's, oh, it was one it's terrifying stages. to think about. And it. one of those bombs was, as I understand it, our listeners should look this up just to be sure, but I'm quite confident that uh, one of the bombs has not yet been recovered. <laughs> yes, that's right. There's there's a couple of incidences, aren't there, where there are nuclear bombs that haven't been discovered. I remember I did a, a project on it at, at, when I was back in mm -hmm. school, and I was just telling people, you know, the U.S. military has, in fact, not kept track of, you know, over 100 nuclear bombs that are all over the place, and most of them are probably under the ocean, but it's a, it's a terrifying prospect as, as far as nuclear terrorism goes, should one of them fall into the wrong hands. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I suppose the other big risk with uh, nuclear terrorism is proliferation, which is starting to rear its head again, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a pretty sad situation. I, I think Donald Trump being in office has exacerbated the situation. Of course, he was he pretty much single-handedly pushed the, do the doomsday clock maintained by the Bolton of the Atomic Scientists forward by 30 yes. seconds at the beginning of this year, um, in part because, as they put it, uh, in part because of his reckless statements about nuclear proliferation when he was on the campaign trail. As we record this, um, Trump and, and uh, Kim Jong-un uh, are exchanging some, uh, you know, a war of words, which is... Yes, their foreign minister is at the UN speaking right now. If I'm oh, right. really? Okay. Um, He's uh, threatened to rain nuclear fire down on the continent of North America and so on. So uh, enjoy that. I, um, hopefully he'll miss Oxford and uh, we can get this podcast out there to the surviving humans on planet Earth. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I mean, if if I suddenly <laughs> if I suddenly disappear, if I stop talking, yes. Um, you know, worry if I don't get in touch with you in the next ten minutes. <laughs> oh, I will. I'll, I'll be concerned. <laughs> but I mean, that, but broadly, the the risk with proliferation that I think most people didn't appreciate, and I didn't appreciate until I looked mm-hmm. into this, is it's not even about being concerned about the present governments that are in charge. Take the Russian Revolution in 1917. Mm-hmm. A, a fringe of radicals overthrows one of the most long-lived la- uh, dynasties. One of the most long-lived dynasties is overthrown by a fringe of radicals mm-hmm. who take over the government. And in their case, they didn't have apocalyptic aims and they didn't have access to nuclear weapons. But the more states there are with nuclear weapons, the more chance there is, just in purely probabilistic terms, that you know their governments will be overthrown and those weapons will fall into the hands of extremists. The, the real risk, back in the 1950s after uh, nuclear weapons were first developed, there was a big movement to have them all put in under the control of a single world government, the UN mm-hmm. perhaps. And uh, you wonder if this is perhaps the only other way we could truly be safe from some non-zero probability of a state being overthrown by bad actors, I guess. Yeah, so I did an interview with Lawrence Krauss. Yeah, Lawrence Krauss is uh, is a major figure at the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists and also just kind of a well-known uh, cosmologist. And and I, so I did an interview with him uh, actually right after the Bulletin moved the minute hand of the Doomsday Clock forward. And So we should explain to everyone that this is a Doomsday Clock is what the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists maintains and it gives an idea of how close the apocalypse is yeah. in terms of minutes to midnight, a symbolic hand on a clock face. And so seven minutes to midnight is where it started uh, back at the sort of that was during the Cold War, I think. And then they've moved it since the the most relaxed it's ever been is about 20 minutes to midnight. And now it's at about two and a half minutes to midnight or so, isn't it? So that's right. They yeah. are judging our end to be nine. Uh, yes, it's it's uh, it's I mean, it's a bunch of Nobel laureates and like really, mm-hmm. really, you know, venerable scientists who determine the time of the doomsday clock. Um, you're totally right. I, seven minutes is what I, I remember. In 1947 was when the, the clock was mm-hmm. established. And 1953 was the closest it's ever been. That was two minutes. And it was 19, I think, 91, shortly after the end of the Cold War, that they moved it back to 17 minutes. And that's the safest <laughs> we've ever been. Yes, the big Cold War relief. Yes. Moment, and I now guess. it's two and a half minutes uh, to doom. And also, we should point out that uh, taking a broader historical view, before 1945, there was no need for a doomsday clock. I mean, if it was always a, a day to midnight or whatever, because it's just impossible to just, to conceive of the species being destroyed by its own means. Yes, and even if you were to take into account natural risks, I mean, those are so improbable. You know, super volcanic mm-hmm. eruption happens once every 50,000 years. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a huge asteroid hits us like once every 400,000 years. So, I mean, th- those are just really low yeah. probability risks. So we're really in a unique, a unique, uh, qualitatively different epoch in human history. You know, where just the, the I know a lot of people, even in terms of just nuclear weapons, I mean, a lot of people... The, the like dread factor associated with nuclear conflict is, I think, lower today than it was in the middle of the Cold War. Yes, I really think that people have stopped. They've taken their eye off the ball uh, in, in terms of this as a threat that could really destroy everything yes. if it gets out. Yeah, of and I think if you talk to experts, 
which I've done, <laughs> um, you know, they'll say yeah. like, no, this is probably the most dangerous, perhaps the most dangerous moment we've ever been in. And not only are we facing nuclear, uh, some kind of nuclear holocaust or, I mean, even a single bomb would just be, would just be epoch changing. I mean, it would be. We, we cannot imagine it. It's 9-11 times a thousand. can't imagine it. It's, I can't imagine waking up the next day and you're just in a different world at that no. point. You are, things would never be. Yeah. And not only are we facing that, but there's like climate change, you know, uh, emerging technologies, the possibility of an engineered pandemic or, you know, more and more scientists are talking about geoengineering, the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And because mm-hmm. of the failure of governments to take seriously the scientific consensus about climate change and how devastating that's. Absolutely. I'm, I'm studying physics at Oxford mm-hmm. at the moment and uh, atmospheric physics in their department. So this is sort of my area. Oh, it's fascinating. And <laughs> it, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's surprising that the geoengineering has become a bigger feature of people's research more recently. And that in itself contains all sorts of risks if, you know, it's done incorrectly. And there's something called the termination shock as well, which is a big concern. So the methods that they have of geoengineering, they could potentially cool the planet. But the issue is, if they were stopped by uh, by mistake or by human actions, for mm-hmm. example, um, then you get the warming that it's been prevented happening incredibly quickly, like far faster than it should otherwise. Yeah. So, and I think our efforts to deal with climate change have been inadequate, and they're they're getting worse in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, That's a very euphemistic way is, of putting that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It, it is it is more of a long-term risk, but in, in one sense, it does make you think about humanity in general. Under our current governance systems, our capacity to deal with threats of this nature aren't especially brilliant. I mean, okay, so in the US you have, um, this is a recent story that many people will have heard of in the news, the Equifax hack. One of the three major credit agencies in the US was hacked by bad actors and they leaked the social security numbers uh, of hundreds of millions of customers, which, as I understand it, is very bad because people can apply for loans and fraudulently use your name Mm -hmm. and so on. And people are saying, well, it it shows how unprepared we are in many ways because Equifax weren't prepared for the hack. Uh, They probably won't be correctly punished for it. And there's no talk about any legislation going through Congress or anything to perhaps prevent this kind of thing from happening happening again or making sure people are more liable and it just it seems like our current institutions aren't very good with dealing with either threats that evolve rapidly which in our case could be biotechnology or artificial intelligence or dealing with threats that evolve over a very long term like climate change where there's always a temptation to kick the can down the road because you know it might not be your problem it won't manifest itself before the end of the next election cycle and so on so and at the same time with trump and erdogan and other political developments we're seeing that people have less faith in democracy as they did yeah. before there was a, in, in ancient rome they had a system called the dictatorship which you probably know about where the normal democratic institutions of rome were suspended for a short amount of time to deal with some crisis or other. so barbarians would invade and then they'd appoint a dictator and this would be the dictator to deal with the mm-hmm. crisis sort everything out and then restore normal government once the crisis had been addressed so for the sake of discussion let's imagine now that you're made dictator for a year or a couple of years of the world 
you're allowed to have people from the Exwix Institute or the Future of Humanity Institute or the Centre for Existential Risk. What, if anything, would you try to do to mitigate some of these risks? <laughs> um, that's a really fascinating question. W- let me say briefly that just um, what you were saying before reminds me of, you know, Max Tegmark has at the Future of Life Institute has this really great phrase where he talks about how we are in a race and the race kind of has existential implications. It's between technology, the power of technology and our wisdom. And, you know, if wisdom wins, then, uh, you know, if, if you have, you know, transhumanist leanings, you know, perhaps the future could be perhaps it's not crazy or unreasonable to think about the future in kind of techno utopian terms, indefinite lifespans, the elimination of all disease, you know, things of this sort. But if wisdom loses and and as you mentioned, I mean, there are statistics out there, as I'm sure you know, that show even in like, you know, Western Europe, uh, people losing faith in the democratic system of government. Yes, all over the world. All over the world. Uh, many people have written Trump is just a symptom. You know, he's not the cause of uh, of uh, certain societal woes. Um, so, yeah, I think. And the other thing that ties into the question you just asked is, is there's, you know, myopia is just kind of built into the system. And that this just further exacerbates mm-hmm. the overall danger of our of our predicament. Um, you know, there are quarterly reports, there are election cycles, you know, and so on. I mean, if you get into office and you are talking about, like, look, people in a thousand years. You know, are really yes, no one is going to care. Yeah. So it's it's a really bad situation. Um, I, I think if I ha- if I were a, like a philosopher king and uh, and had total like autocratic power, and advisors, you know, who are who are sagacious and and learned, um, <laughs> you know, from FHI and so on. Um, I think one is I, I would probably implement policies more long term and they're focused. I, I, in mm-hmm. other words, I think I would adopt a lower discount rate uh, about the future. You know, how how much do you value future humans? You know, a lot of people kind of mm-hmm. shrug and say, well, you know, they're I'm not so worried about them. I'm much more worried about people who are around today and so on. They don't care about anything after they're dead, and if they can become rich by endangering future humans, they will absolutely do it. I see this attitude, you know, expressed in those terms by a lot of people. So do I. In fact, I, I talk to yeah. a lot of people who I, I don't think quite have the um, that selfishness, you know, like like if if I mm-hmm. could gain at their expense, that would be fine with me. It's it's more like, yeah, I want to do good in the world. I want to recycle and, you know, drive a small car, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, like when I'm dead, I really don't care. I talk to a lot of people, like very, very smart people and try to intelligent, well-meaning, good people. Yeah. And it just doesn't matter to them. It, it really baffles me. Um, I, I usually have a hard time convincing them otherwise. I, I, there, there are arguments that you mm. could you could uh, present. But yeah, my view and, and maybe I, I mean, if you want, I could I could try to justify this. But my view is is the same as I think the majority of ethicists who believe that time discounting human lives is not a defensible thing. You know, a human life. And, and I mean, one of the most obvious arguments is like, you know, if you have a, I can't remember the exact numbers, but if you have a five percent annual discount rate. So, you know, you value people just a little bit less every every year. If you add that up, what it entails is 
I believe an absurd conclusion that, you know, the, a single human life right now has the same intrinsic moral value as like 4 billion human lives in 500 years mm-hmm. or something, <laughs> you know? So that's something about that seems yes. wrong. And, and, and insofar as one shares the intuition that something about that seems wrong, you should be a bit skeptical about whether time discounting is, is morally right at all. Yeah, you can take the sort of reduce it to the absurd conclusions of the of the uh, morality and a graver concern. Yes. I, I, I think perhaps one of the reasons why this time discounting of human life value as we go forward is so mainstream is because we've not actually dealt so much with the legacy of previous generations dealing us a bad hand. Do you know what I mean? Previous generations have not destroyed the environment. Previous generations have not made it impossible for us to continue extracting resources at an incredible rate. Previous generations, although they've had wars and conflicts and you know locally destroyed lands and so on, they've certainly not done anything that's limited us. And in many ways, their legacy has been very beneficial. You know, the developments of science and the infrastructure that allow us to lead the kind of lives we have today. Perhaps if we lived in a future where I don't know there was some nuclear waste legacy from previous generations that we were now having to deal with we might be more conscious of uh the necessity to make the world a better place for people who will live 100 200 a thousand years from now as opposed to just focusing uh, the vast carelessness of humanity i guess i I think that's a excellent point um i would even add something in addition to it which is that i i think i could i think there's one sort of notable example that is 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 kind of salient in contemporary american society and that is slavery so Mm -hmm. and my my ultimate point is that even when there has been these like transgenerational you know ripple effects humans are pretty bad at tracing them back i mean in other words there's a lot of puzzlement as to why there's social unrest from African-Americans in the U.S., <laughs> you know, when... Yes, they're... absolutely. And th- people aren't pinning it at the feet of previous generations, as they absolutely... Yeah, should. and I, th- I think if you read the scholarship on this, I mean, there is, you know, every generation of of African-Americans who came over here on the slave ships and so on, I mean, there's a kind of trauma that is is heritable. <laughs> you know, it's passed on from one generation. There's one scholar who calls it, um, I think she calls it post-traumatic slave syndrome or something that and just i mean the, the ultimate point is like yeah that that's that is still a dark cloud that hangs over our society and i and at least in my judgment it genuinely affects certain minorities in the u.s and yet um we're not even able to trace that so i can imagine if you know a future situation in which we have left some kind of negative legacy you know pollution or something like that mm-hmm. and people don't even still make the connection <laughs> you know we're not even yes, that clever yes as well as this post-traumatic stress slave disorder there's the social attitudes that are damaging that are inherited from previous generations mm-hmm. and you know the, whether those generations are still extant and running the country or whether they are you right. know, <laughs> things that people have learned from their uh, forebears and yeah so yes. um yeah but but i i mean i i think i think it would be wise for sure for our leaders to Take a broader perspective. Think deeply about the consequences of present actions on future conditions. And also, I, I think there's a there's a you know Derek Parfit, the philosopher, has a has a now like very frequently quoted passage from one of his books where he says that he thinks the difference 
between 1% of humanity dying out and 99% dying out, that difference is less than 99% dying out and 100% dying out. And the reason is that the latter, unlike the former, closes off permanently the entire future development of civilization. And, you know, if you sit down and crunch the numbers, I mean, it turns out it's plausible that there are, you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of possible humans. If we get off this planet and spread amongst the Yes. Cells. And even if we're on this planet for the next one billion years until the sun turns into mm -hmm. a red giant and swallows the earth, um, mm -hmm. uh, it's, I mean, it's billions and it's just, it's just really astronomical. Numbers. Absolutely. You could, the planet could support billions, uh, if the resources were allocated yes. well and used wisely with applications. Yeah. So I, I, I feel so oftentimes when I talk to people about existential risk, and again, I tend to be a bit of a, of a pessimist about our, <laughs> our capacity. It's difficult not to be when you study the end of the world so much, isn't yeah, it? Well, I could have gone the other way. There's no reason. You know, mm. I mean, I, I could have gone, oh, well, it seems like all these, these existential risk guys uh, are totally alarmist. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I, in fact, I mean, there are a lot of like, like preppers and, you know, people, uh, religious people and so on who hold, you know, the, the end of the world is nigh kind of views that I think are not justified. And it's much to my disappointment that the more I study this, the more convinced I am that it's going to be really, really hard to, to get things right in the end. Um, this is so damaging because our message should be, these risks are real. You need to engage with them. There are things we can do that will help us uh, prevent this kind of thing from happening, whether it's better regulation of biotechnology, whether it's a discussion of the ethics of artificial intelligence, whether it's nuclear non-proliferation, whether it's, you know, preparedness for even cosmic events like asteroid deflection and things like this that we could do but aren't implementing. Rather than being doom-filled and millennial and saying the end of the world is nigh and there's nothing you can do about it, uh, we'd be better off making sure that people have a good understanding of what these risks are the ways in which they can be combated. Yeah, so I, that, this is exactly what I was going to say. You know, my position is not to evangelize for uh, for despondency and nihilism. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I genuinely think that if we get things right, the future could be unbelievably good. I mentioned this, the kind of like techno-utopian paradise. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's kind of crazy to, to think about that. Um, I don't think I say that uncritically. I, I feel like I've... I've I, I've thought a lot about the issue and, you know, am I being just another one of these people many times throughout history who have, you know, you know, Marx had this view that, you know, we're soon going to reach the, the pure communism and things like that. And I, I don't mm -hmm. think that's the case. And also I would, I would very, I would emphatically add that I don't think there's a single risk confronting humanity that is insoluble. You know, it's just a matter. I mean, my pessimism is, it, it, pertains mostly to our ability as a species to get up off our butts and actually, you know, do something collectively in a coordinated manner to solve these problems. Um, but, but it's without a doubt, a note of optimism is that there's just not a single, I think superintelligence is probably one of the, the most difficult problems to solve. And oftentimes when I've mentioned this in the past, I've mentioned um, super volcanoes until recently, there kind of wasn't any, real good uh, proposed, even proposed mechanism for obviating a uh, super volcanic eruption. Uh, mm -hmm. And now there is. In fact, NASA, there's just an article out from two weeks ago about how NASA is 
is working on a plan to drill holes into the ground around Yellowstone National Park because there's a huge supervolcano there. Yeah, yeah. We've done an episode on this. This was our most recent episode. So what, they want to drain the caldera of magma? I didn't read about this. Yeah. So just sort of relieve the the, the pressure. That would be stunning. You know, pop the pimple in a sense. It's kind of... Yeah. I mean, we've talked about there was the Lake Toba event 75,000 years ago, which some people think, although I know it's disputed, Mm -hmm. uh, was a good candidate for the closest humans did come to extinction because there was a population bottleneck around that time. They've looked at the genetics and it seems like there might have only been a few thousand humans alive. And so supervolcanoes historically have been a big natural threat. So the idea that we could deal with that is just, as you say, evidence for optimism and being a little more techno-utopian about it. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's. I mean, I would just emphasize again that, that there's there's no risk in front of us that can't be solved. We just need to take it seriously. So oftentimes, really, my point of like going out and and uh, giving talks or, or writing books or whatever about these issues is to galvanize people. Nick Bostrom has famously published that or mentioned in a in a publication that there are more papers written about dung beetles and Star Trek than there are yes. about existential risk. So, and, yes. and I am not denigrating uh, the study, you know, entomology or cultural studies at all. I think those are very important. But in terms of in terms of, of priorities, I hope to galvanize people to, to to make them think. Well, maybe my, you know, maybe it's it's more important at this given moment, this crucial juncture, juncture, yeah, in human history, that I I join the small teams of people who are trying to think rigorously about how it is that we maximize the a good outcome maximize future value for for our species. So that's the end of the first part of our discussion with Phil Torres, and as I say, I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. We'll be publishing the second part as an episode in a couple of weeks. Next week we'll return to our regularly programmed schedule with an episode on the Malthusian catastrophe. Um, Until then, I would urge you to tell at least one friend about the episode you've just heard and the show in general, because if you all keep doing this by the law of accelerating returns, Within about 30 episodes or so, we'll have over a trillion listeners, at which point I will become immensely powerful and I will be able to satisfy any of your wishes with my vast wealth. Of course, the more people you tell about the show, the more people we can educate about existential risks, and uh, hopefully they'll have some good fun listening to it as well. Until then, stay safe. You better make some preparations, there's no time for Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.